This week on The Futurists, Mark Pesci. It feels as though with, with this integration, it was something that was done very quickly and they didn't really think any of it through. They didn't put any guard railing around it. And it, it was the car wreck that you would expect when you just throw chat GPT into something. Wow. Hey, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and this time I'm flying solo. And we've got a great guest, someone returning to the show, uh, someone we've heard from before, my good friend and fellow futurist, Mark Pesci. Mark, good to see you in the United States of America. You're this Thank way you. for the first time in a long time, right? Yeah, I was back here for a brief visit in June, but this is my first time to do any business in America in basically five years, since 2019. So during the pandemic, Australia famously had that like total lockdown where you couldn't even go five miles from your house, let alone to another country. And Australians like to travel a lot. So you yeah. were you were kind of grounded in Australia for a few years there with the pandemic. Yeah. And I mean, look at, let's not make too much of it. Those periods when you had the five mile limit were brief. Right. And they were when the pandemic was really raging before people were vaccinated. And it's funny because I have heard a lot of people go, oh, my God, we're still locked down. It didn't really feel that way to us. I mean, and it was really funny because my friends and I would look at the map and go, here's a park. We're going to meet here because it's less than five kilometers from you and it's less than five kilometers from me. So it really wasn't as horrible as people make it out to be, but it was a long period of enforced isolation from the rest of the world. That it definitely was. So now the pandemic isn't, isn't that really gone. It's still there. We just decided to ignore it collectively as a society and travels back. And of course, Australians love to travel. Nothing's closer than 12 hours away. So for Australians, what we would consider to be a big trip here in the U.S., that's nothing. That's just a starting point. And you're on your big, uh, big North American tour back to yeah. see people here. And along the way, you paid a visit to one of our favorite spectacles, one of the most absurd spectacles in one of the most unbelievable cities, sort of futuristic, but not my not my choice of future. Of course, I'm talking about the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. How'd you enjoy it? Look, CES is big, right? You have to first just start off. It's about a quarter million people. And it's the biggest show that goes to Las Vegas and it fills Las Vegas. And it doesn't just fill the convention center. It fills the convention center at the Venetian. It fills the convention center at the Mandalay Bay. It fills the convention center at the Aria. So if there's convention space in the city, it's being used for CES. And one of the things that I'm reminded of every time is that it is impossible to see everything, right? You can make a good effort at it. And we made a very good effort at it. And it's still the kind of thing where people say, did you see? And it's like, I didn't even know about it, right? Because it's that big. Now, the show has a, a whole bunch of moving parts. It's also one of the most important automobile shows in the world. And we'll talk about that. Of course, it's where everyone's rolling out their new TV sets and their new home entertainment systems. And it's also where all sorts of crazy new tech from lots of startups and little companies with some wacky idea that's actually generally quite a good idea, are also presenting their products to the world. So it's a real mix of big and small. And we spent time with both the big and the small. And I have to tell you, this year, the big was quite disappointing and the small was really exciting. Now, the big wasn't uniformly disappointing and the small wasn't uniformly exciting. But overall, 
I'm looking to the small. It's kind of like the dinosaurs versus the mammals because the mammals are running around innovating and evolving and the dinosaurs are just waiting for that asteroid. Well, and the big big companies, in some respects, they're a little more defensive, right? Uh, they're less able to be disruptive. They've got business lines to protect and known products and brands. And so it, sustaining innovation is more the theme, I think, from the big companies. You would think that, Robert. However, let me now tell you about Hyundai. So Hyundai, I went to their media conference, which was a day before the show opens because I have media pass. And we were expecting them to talk about their electric vehicles or this or that or the other thing. All Hyundai wanted to talk about was hydrogen. Why they wanted to talk about hydrogen wasn't really clear, but it was all going to be a beautiful hydrogen future. They were going to recover hydrogen from plastics and da-da-da-da-da. The whole city and the planet's going to be redesigned around hydrogen as an energy. Now, you and I can go off on that at length, and I have at length on other podcasts. And you and I were talking about it recently. We were talking about hydrogen. I think Toyota was pushing for hydrogen vehicles, right? And uh, hydrogen is, you know, particularly in dense urban areas, it is not a preferable energy solution to just batteries and electricity. Hyundai had decided their entire booth would be filled with this big hydrogen integrated solution planet thing. And it was something between one of my colleagues who was with me described it as an undergraduate design project got wrong. I described it as monomania because Hyundai is really revisiting the entire built environment and reconfiguring it around their hydrogen civilization. And I'm like, well, you know, that's interesting as a thought experiment, but that's a couple of trillion dollars in infrastructure that you're talking about just to get started. Why would you be doing this when we have perfectly good battery technology when Hyundai already makes some of the most successful EVs? And yeah. They didn't talk about any of that. There were no EVs in the booth. There was nothing. It was just hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen. And they had all of these mini vehicles that they designed that were powering people autonomously around cities. And I'm looking at this. Why are you using hydrogen? Why isn't this just using batteries? You're in the middle of a city. Charging is not an issue. <laughs> it was It really, it was like they were trying to, how can we be innovative this year? Kia, oh, I see. Oh, so it had a, a whiff of desperation about it. Kia did much the same thing around logistics. They completely revisited and reimagined logistics around the Kia system for logistics. And again, has that whiff of monomania around it. Let's do everything the Kia way. It's like, I don't think you're going to get the global logistics system to do it. I really, truly don't. And so these companies both have very respectable electric vehicles, also interesting products going on. None of that was at the show. And we're wondering... What possessed them to well, leave what they I were mean, already to their doing credit, well. right? They're showing a new idea and they're not they're not doing a they're not doing a victory lap. I mean, listen, Hyundai and Kia have introduced some really impressive electric vehicles in the last few years. Uh, you know, they're quite popular. They seem to be growing in popularity, at least here in California. And so maybe they don't want to be doing a victory lap. Look at the part of what this consumer electronics show is about is future concepts. Yeah. And you see that, right? You see ideas. They're, they're floating ideas that may never get built more to gauge appetite and reaction and press response and see what their competitors do. Sometimes it's, it's intended to throw competitors off the scent. And sometimes it's really serious. Mark, tell me a little bit more about hydrogen as a fuel, because we keep hearing about it, but it seems like one of those permanent sunrise things where the sun never fully rises. 
is is hydrogen even feasible as a fuel for vehicles? It seems like it's a little unstable. Well, it's not. Okay. Hydrogen is feasible because you feed it into a fuel cell and you convert it to water and electricity, all right? And that, that process has been used since the Apollo, right? Mm-hmm. They used it in Skylab and all that. So fuel cells are not a new technology. What we have now is a chain of cryogenic hydrogen. So that's hydrogen that's cooled down to around 5 to 10 degrees above absolute zero. All right. So the coldest temperature there can be kept in basically a thermos and then put inside of a vehicle to provide power for that vehicle. Now, here's the thing. Storing anything at that temperature, okay, you can do it. It takes some energy, but you can do it. Storing hydrogen is extremely difficult because of quantum effects. Hydrogen will leak out of anything. Full stop. Like you can't stop it. That's just physics. And so if you, you eat the molecules can go outside of the tank. Tunneling. They, they will go out. They're going it's for quantum sure tunneling, out. right? Because it's a single proton, right? That's not a lot to tell, right? It's right. a single proton. It's hydrogen. Right. So in terms of the probability of a proton being on one side of the tank and the other side of the tank, ah, flip a coin. So the thing of it is that you can park if you park a vehicle, say a truck that's got a full tank of hydrogen in it, if you come back a month later, half of it will be gone. It will just dissipate. So when you have hydrogen-powered vehicles, you need to make the hydrogen on demand, put it into the vehicle, and use it immediately because you will lose a few percent of that per day, which means that your hydrogen production chains actually have to be quite tight. You can't just make it over there, ship it halfway around the world, and then expect it to be there when you got it. Okay, so this might explain some of the focus on logistics, because if you're going to go down the hydrogen route, then you're really rethinking the supply chain for energy. Does this mean we're going to have like little, like miniature hydrogen plants? Will people have them at home the way we have EV chargers at home? So this is what Hyundai was saying. There will be little local hydrogen stations. But again, you need to make a commanding argument for why you would be doing that and not using electricity, because any of the environments they were proposing were heavily urban environments where there's already full electrification. So why are you using that rather than a battery? Now, some of the use cases involve long distance trucking. A battery powered truck, such as a Tesla semi or whatever, will tend to go sort of 300 to 500 kilometers, which is around, what, 200 to 350 miles on a charge. And then you have to stop it and you have to charge it. And depending on the kinds of batteries and da-da-da-da-da, you're going to be out there for an hour charging the battery. Whether that's a big deal or not, who knows? Um, Whereas if you have hydrogen, you can probably go a 1,000 kilometers, so the distance between, say, Sydney and Melbourne in Australia, just using hydrogen. So there is an argument to be made that in that specific use case and where you will have hydrogen filling stations at either end, makes a lot of sense. Conceivably, that's exactly the right way to do interstate trucking, all right? But for most urban uses where you have dense power grids, why aren't you just using batteries? And this is the part of the question that I didn't see Hyundai solving. They just had hydrogen little fuel cells on everything when it didn't seem like there was a use case. There's a big question of why, like the what they explained and the how maybe, but not the why. Why would we make this change? Now, Mark, from an energy standpoint, what's uh, more efficient? I imagine hydrogen is desirable because the output is water, right? So that's that's, um, good for the environment. 
But creating all that hydrogen, that can't be free. That's got to be kind of a complex undertaking. It's a complex undertaking. They were looking at recycling plastics, basically putting plastics into uh, uh, a biodegrader, right? A biodigester to be able to break down the, the chains into carbon and hydrogen. So they were, they were trying to create, in a sense, a circular economy. And you can't fault them for this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about different ways to create hydrogen. There's brown hydrogen, green hydrogen, and blue hydrogen. So brown hydrogen is hydrogen that's created from burning hydrocarbons. So you burn coal or you burn natural gas and you create hydrogen. And that's not good because it's creating carbon dioxide. There's blue hydrogen where you're taking, say, uh, methane, so CH4, and then cracking it to break out the carbon, putting that aside, that generally gets released as carbon dioxide. So not great, but then you also get hydrogen to use. That's blue hydrogen. And then there's green hydrogen, which you generally create through hydrolysis, that is running electricity through water. You generate that electricity, say, through solar or for wind, so some sort of uh, renewable resource. And then what you get is hydrogen that has had no net impact on the environment. What you get is oxygen, and then you get hydrogen. So those are the three paths. You really have to be focusing on green hydrogen if you want to be able to do things that are not increasing the carbon load in the planet's atmosphere. And was that what Hyundai and Kia were talking about? Were they talking about, oh, so they're so they're envisioning like we're going to go right back to the source of the energy, make it green, and then the output will be no no fumes, no fossil fuels, no carbon outputs and so forth. Uh, bold vision. Okay, so folks, we're talking about the Consumer Electronics Show, which is an annual gathering in Las Vegas. Uh, that show is one of the largest trade shows in the world. Historically, it was to show off things like television sets and stereos. And of course, over the last 30 years, those have evolved and morphed. Uh, they got in, they got intelligent. First, they got computer chips, then they got digital, and then they got uh, connected. And then they got smart, right? So 10 years ago, every device was considered to be a smart device. Later, we learned to our dismay that that word smart is really just code for vulnerable um, because as soon as you network something, you just broaden the attack surface into your home. And today, lots of people have these legacy devices like smart lights and locks and so forth um, that actually make their homes vulnerable. And they're not even aware of it. So that's like kind of like the mini, I just gave it like a little 30-second 30, 30 potted history of Consumer Electronics Show. But you just pointed out that the car company started showing up. So along with the network yeah. devices, the smart devices, we started to see smart cars. And in some ways, what we're seeing is, is um, Consumer Electronics Show is fulfilling uh, filling the gap where Comdex used to be. Comdex used to be the big computer show. That was actually my first trade show in Vegas in the early 90s, uh, strictly for computer geeks. That was a heavily computerized show, but that was because the, the big PC boom was just happening at that point. What's interesting about Comdex is as soon as the PC boom was over by the late 90s, it blew up. It imploded as a show. It used to be a huge trade show. And then all that energy kind of shifted over to consumer electronics, which you can envision is kind of like the second chapter of computing. It's embedded computing and, and therefore all the smart devices. Now, what you're telling me is that consumer electronics show is now starting to envision embedded uh, intelligence or network network uh, connectivity in just about everything, including people. So you were actually you saw some examples of putting, uh, you know, it's kind of connecting computers directly into the human brain, brain interface. Right. So what was interesting about this is, and we've seen some of that in stuff that was going on in England, where they were actually implanting electrodes in the brain. What I saw was work from the University of Grenoble, which did not do that. The thing that's different about this is they're not implanting electrodes in the brain. They are cutting open the skull and they're putting electrodes, but they're putting them on on the brain surface. So they are not, in fact, 
actually getting into the brain. And so what it's doing is it's basically acting as a permanent EEG, so electroencephalograph, a reader. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's all it's doing. And they pointed out that this is actually much better because if you put electrodes in the brain, the brain's defense systems will coat those electrodes and they will, over time, become less and less and less usable because the signal will simply fade. When you put this on top of the brain like this, brain doesn't care because the brain is still unmolested. And so they, they found it's that- It's outside of the brain barrier. There's a membrane that coats yeah. the brain. This is sitting on top of that, I suppose. It's sitting on top of the Dora and all of the stuff that's keeping the brain in case. Inside but, of the skull, but out, yes. but outside of the actual brain. Oh, this is important because I know Neuralink is experimenting with this and they're in the process of killing monkeys on a kind of a routine basis uh, to try to get there. We previously had a guest, uh, Dr. Philip Eldada, who, whom you know, he worked at DARPA. Uh, where he developed the cortical interface or the cortical modem, which is to say, you know, a modem that connects directly into the brain. So that was something he pioneered almost a decade ago at, yeah. at DARPA. Uh, and even at the time, he said, you know, the challenge is when you put wires in that brain, it's not just that they get coded, but he said, even if it's just a little tiny electrical current, if you raise the temperature of the brain by even one degree, you're cooking the brain. Not a good outcome for the person uh, whose brain has been implanted. So you're telling me now we don't have to cook our brains in order to get a direct neural interface. No. And and what's interesting here is because it's just EEG rather than direct neural, you know, what happens in these systems? And we've seen these systems being used. Oh God, these systems have been around in various forms for 30 years or so, right? That what the what happens is the person who's using the system essentially learns how to speak to the interface, learns how to put their brain waves into a particular pattern that allows it to then trigger the interface. So what happens is that if a paraplegic is using this system, they'll have the implant and then they'll learn how to talk to the interface in order to be able to move. So basically to trigger a a neuromusculature through the computing interface. So the the EEG will go into the computer, the computer will interpret the brain signals and the brain signals will fire off electrodes on the body to get the body to move in ways that they can't because the nervous connection has actually been cut, right? So yes. it, it's, it takes months of training for people to do this, but it is long-term sustainable for them. And this is what the researchers are very proud of. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that, there's more to the story, I think, than just uh, helping those who can't walk or move their limbs regain that mobility. Obviously, that's a gigantic win. That's one of the reasons why DARPA was so keen on developing this. A big part of the, the Defense Advanced Research Project mission is to help soldiers, help wounded warriors. Um, and there are, of course, plenty of soldiers who lost limbs in the last in the wars of the last, last a couple of decades. And so they start to develop these cortical modems as a way for them to regain control over robotic limbs. Yeah. But then what they discovered, after they went off through the learning process you just described, they discovered that once someone has developed a facility of using their brain to command a, a, a robotic device, they're not limited to devices that are connected to their body. And so the next thing they did was they had this quadriplegic soldier. Uh, she, she was a female soldier. They had her hooked up to a flight simulator. And the next thing you knew, she was flying an F-14 with her thoughts alone. So what this really points to, these, these cortical modems or brain interfaces, they point to a merging of humans and machines. This, uh, this kind of um, vision of like a bionic creature of the future. You know, In other words, it's not just that artificial intelligence means that machines will be intelligent. But in some ways, we'll be able to extend human thinking or human intelligence into machines. So you saw a little glimpse of that from the University of Grenoble at, at CES. I, I, I did, and 
I thought it was really interesting because in these systems, these are read only, right? It's only reading the brainwaves. It's not sending signals back. So you you rely on vision and sound and whatever tactile and other senses that they might have in order to be able to bring the loop in. Because really, you need that loop in order to get the learning to work, right? Because if you don't have a, a feedback loop, the brain doesn't really have any stimulus that it can then train on to know that it's doing things right or wrong. I want to point to my favorite thing that I saw, because it's along these lines, it is called the gyro gear. All right. So people who have Parkinson's or Parkinsonoid diseases, and there are tens of millions of people in the world who have this as a form of degeneration of the uh, sinus nigra in the nervous system. It controls your ability to control your movements, either to initiate or control your movements. And people who have this will often have very severe hand tremors, all right? Because they cannot, in other words, the feedbacks that are normally managing our fine motor control, and we have very fine motor control as human beings, simply they're lost. And so this researcher, sort of Singaporean and from UCL in London, doctor, spent years measuring the problem. And he realized it's very easy to build a sensor array that will detect the movement of the hand when there's a tremor going on. The clever thing that he did and the thing that took him years to work out is he created a gyroscopic counterbalance. So it's a gyroscopic flywheel. All right. And what's happening is if you put this glove on someone who has a severe nerve tremor, effectively what it is, is it's noise cancellation for your neuromuscular system. And all of a sudden, someone who couldn't hold a cup of water can hold a cup of water, can thread a needle, all sorts of things that they couldn't do. And for people who have this, who generally tend to be older, it's life-changing, right? Because they go from basically needing assistance with basic things to not requiring any assistance at all. Now, it's in release. It won basically all of the awards at CES this year. Oh, it did? Okay, great. Oh, yeah. No, it won basically all of the awards. So there's a, there's a lot of awards. This is the gyro gear hand gyro stabilizer. Gear. Yeah, the gyro gear hand stabilizer. And my heart sings when I see this because it's it's mechanical, but it's electromechanical, and it's using the principles of feedback, right? It's dampening the the, the yeah. unregulated feedback signals from the body. It's just that's just it's ticking all of my boxes, Robert, but really everything cool you want to see. And so it's it's for sale now. It's five thousand dollars, which isn't cheap, but for someone who's got this, hand them the money because they're not going to need a carer every hour. Right. Of the day, that's true. Right? That's true. Also, they regain so many skilled motor skills. Yeah. You know, people tend to forget if you have Parkinson's, uh, you're actually intellectually fine. You know, you're capable of thinking, right? Um, but your motor systems are broken down. So you're, you're, you, you act like you're unable, you know, your, your body isn't responding properly. If you can fix that a motor system, then actually the person could be restored to uh, independence. That's a pretty powerful thing. How big is it? How big is the gyro system? Is it like, oh, it, it's machines? okay. So the actual counterweight itself is kind of like a, a disc. You can think of it like a thick watch disc that's sitting here. And then the, the sensor array is just on the arm, but it really is just a glove. You just put it on. Right. Oh, and oh, so you it's start not a machine that you strap into. Okay. Yeah, it, it is literally you, you strap it on. It's got the battery back here. I think with the battery it will run for a couple days. All right. And so the and the counterbalancing is happening from this 
circular unit up here, which is probably, I don't know, maybe an inch and a half tall. All right. Okay. Um, that doesn't look like it weighs that much, but it's providing enough of the continuous counterweighting. And this is the thing, because it's clearly quite a sophisticated electromechanical system in order to provide the dampening as it's sensing in real time. And of course, this is possible, again, we go back to the smartphone, because cheap gyroscopes, which this requires in order to operate as a sensor, cheap gyroscopes are an artifact of the fact that there's gyroscopes in every smartphone. So we've manufactured a few billion uh, solid-state gyroscopes, high-speed solid-state gyroscopes. And so that's the enabling sensor technology. And then what he developed, I think, up here is the, the enabling gyroscopic counterweight technology. Very cool. The point you're making about the um, achieving scale with smartphones is really, really very important. Uh, we tend to forget that the um, you know when we're selling more than a billion smartphones a year, that drives down the cost of all those components. And so then those components become available for other inventors to apply to different kinds of devices, different kinds of machines. And that starts you know, kind of expanding the, the uh, horizon of all the things that are possible. That's exactly what CES is designed to showcase. Let's take a little break here. And then in, in the second half, we're going to talk about another way to predict the future, how to forecast the future. It's Rob Tursik here this week on The Futurists. And I am with Mark Pesce, who's visiting the United States from his base in Australia. And he's giving us his summary report about CES 2024. We'll see you in just a minute. Hang tight. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Hey, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik. And this week I'm interviewing Mark Pesci, who's been a guest on The Futurists in the past. In the past, he's joined us from his base in Australia, but this time he's swinging through the West Coast of the United States on his way back from the big consumer electronics show in Las Vegas, uh, which is always such a spectacle. Vegas itself is a phenomenal spectacle. But when you've got 200,000 people and every consumer electronics company in the world there jammed into that enormous, what is it, four miles, the convention center, enormous convention center, loud, noisy, din, jammed full of shows and all this new gear, you're trying to take it all in. But like you said earlier, Mark, it's now metastasized across the entire city. So there's no way for you to take it all in now because you would have to walk from one end of the strip to the other and go into all those giant casino convention centers. Uh, so scattered around there, you see glimpses of the future and you see a lot of stuff that frankly is stillborn and it's never going to lead to anything. Uh, failed, failed thought experiments. Um, but one way, one methodology for forecasting that we know of well, and we talk about often mm. on this show, is if you know what's happening with semiconductors or with uh, with chips in general, you can predict the future because you know that when those chips are made, you'll know what they're capable of and you can begin to design a, a product and even an entire business around that. And you saw something interesting this time around uh, with, with regard to artificial intelligence. Tell us what a memristor is and how it's different from a transistor. So a memristor, and this is a term that 
is about 50 years old. It was first conceived in 1971, and, and it was conceived as the fourth of the four basic electronic elements. So we have resistors, which resist electrical current. We have capacitors, which resist electrical frequency. We have inductors, which shape magnetic fields. And then we have memristors, which are, can change their resistance based on a magnetic field. So they're signed almost a weird combination of an inductor and a resistor, all right? But they're a set and forget. So you use a magnetic field to change the value of a memristor and then it's set, okay? So this idea was developed in theory 50 years ago. It took 40 years before we really started to see the first ones work out from the lab. So we knew what it was, but to make it actually took some time. By the time they had emerged from the lab, sort of after 2010, the entire world was digital. No one cared about a variable resistor because everyone wanted just oh. either. There's no current or there's current. There's a one right, or a zero, right? <laughs> and so it emerged into a world where people just didn't need them. And, this, and, and the memristor kind of died on the vine 10 years ago as a result. However, these days... We're now talking about AI. We're talking about AI models, large language models. All of the large language models we're using have what they call weights, all right? And weights are values that are between zero and one. And a large language model will have billions of these values, sometimes trillions of these values between zero and one. And as we said earlier, digital things want to be a one or a zero. They don't want to be somewhere between one and zero. A memristor, on the other hand, loves being between one and zero. Uh -huh. So the way that we've been storing weightings in RAM and in memory that is energy intensive and computer intensive, when you move it to storing it in a memristor, which is what I saw from a company called TetraRAM on the show floor at CES in their little pokey booth. But I stopped and I went, because I, I was like, oh, Oh, and got them to tell me all about it. And they have chips in their manufacturing now. When we make the transition from for using this for storing our weightings for our language models, it is at minimum 10 times more energy efficient. And depending on how efficient you can make the rest of the chips supporting this, it could be as much as 100 times more energy efficient than the way we're doing it today. That's a big deal because AI in the data center is consuming huge amounts of energy. And now that we're consuming huge amounts of AI, that's just skyrocketing. So mm -hmm. anything that we can use at the semiconductor level to make AI, it, you know, 10x, that's an enormous win. It means that that will probably, over the next decade, become a primary way of storing the weightings for our AI models in the data center. Okay, so let me let me unpack what you said because that's quite yeah. an interesting idea there. So the first place you see as being useful is in the data center, where currently these large language models live, right? So if you're um, if you if your company is using cloud services from Amazon or Google, or uh, Microsoft Azure, you're probably being convinced right now by some salesperson to apply your credits to AI and migrate your whole business over to AI. Yeah. Um, now, at the moment, we know that those companies aren't necessarily making money with this, right? They're trying to acquire customers and retain them, but they might be losing money. And some of the estimates are that it's actually quite extraordinarily expensive to run. So what you're proposing here is that this would drop the costs so, so dramatically 
that the cloud companies will be quite profitable hosting these large uh, AI, um, large customers who are using AI and integrating their business. So it might make it cost effective. You, you might, and and Ketcheram themselves actually see this as being used on the edge rather than in the cloud. So Even that better. if you have something that's doing, for instance, uh, image recognition, facial recognition, object recognition, right? All of which again uses weighting and AI. Uh, just at a, a slightly lower scale than, say, a language model does, which is very big, that, again, you could do this on an edge-connected device that's running on batteries for weeks at a time because you've cut the power requirement by a factor of 10 or a factor of 100. So it's got... Okay, so that means something like a cases. vehicle could have AI in it as well. Or how about a mobile phone? Do you think eventually we'll start yes. to see Tetra RAM uh, memristors in phones as well? Look, I think to the degree that phones will need, I mean, remember, more and more of the CP or the, the circuitry, the core circuitry on a phone is being given over to AI. Mm-hmm. Qualcomm introduced their new Snapdragon chips, which will make their way into most Android devices. Apple already has a lot of what they call the neural processing unit inside their own chips in their own phones. So that's a general trend anyway. This may become part of the set of circuits that go into these system on a chip, as we're calling it, over the next couple of years. I mean, I'm looking at Tetraram going, why haven't they been bought by a Facebook or by a Microsoft or by a Google or by a Qualcomm for their technologies here Mm -hmm. so that they can simply be integrated as part of a chip? Okay, so it won't be a standalone, it won't be a standalone chip necessarily. It'll be something like gets embedded, as you say, in a system on a chip. It would seem like the obvious candidate to acquire them would be NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA's, NVIDIA is quite digital, right? I mean, the way they the way they process, the way their GPUs, it is really geared around that fully digital math mathematics. It, it's not really geared for that optimization around the analog. So uh. I think it's less of a fit for them than it might be for a Facebook, which might be trying to use their Llama models very efficiently, or for a Qualcomm that wants to be able to offer this on a smartphone or on some sort of other edge computing device. But again, it's early days, Robert. I don't think we really know. All I know is when I saw this, I was like, that is extremely important and cool. And, and you know, the paper describing their work was published in Nature. So these are not fly-by-nights. Right? right, they got the premier scientific journal in the world to publish their research last year. Do you know? Have they patented this technology, or have they not done so? Uh, it wasn't immediately clear to me from their website. I will presume that this is the case, uh, but I didn't see anything specifically indicating we have all of these specific patents. Okay. But they do have chips. Cool. Right? Okay, they so have, that's Tetra Ram. That's Tetra Ram, and the and the product is the Memristor. Yeah, uh, it's optimized for artificial intelligence. That's super fascinating. Well, you know, the last time I was at CES, um, they were not just big on cars, and of course, that's become a bigger and bigger component of the show each year. You can think of your car as a large rolling smartphone loaded with sensors, and now with artificial intelligence built into the dashboard, so you can talk to your car. Um, but you also saw. Okay, now let's just stop there. Okay. <laughs> BW showed up Chat GPT integration. Yeah. With Ida, which is their voice assistant, it was a train wreck. 
Oh, <laughs> okay. Tell me. It was a complete train wreck, up to and including at the end of the live public demo, they asked Ida who the best car maker in the world was, and Ida gave them a list, and VW wasn't on it. Oops. So this actually happened. So it feels as though with, with this integration, it was something that was done very quickly and they didn't really think any of it through. They didn't put any guard railing around it. And it, it was the car wreck that you would expect when you just throw chat GPT into something. Wow. Funny, funny to use that term car wreck. <laughs> what you're telling me yeah. reminds me of that famous story of, of Steve Jobs before he went on stage to show off the iPhone in 2007 at the, um, at the, at the, the worldwide developer conference for Apple. And there had been an engineering team that had been working very hard to make the three versions of the iPhone actually work properly because there wasn't one at the time. There was no iPhone. It was it was like a prop. And just before he went on stage, he turned to the lead engineer and he said, if this fails, it's your fault. Yeah. Just, to, just to add a little extra terror into the crew there behind the scenes. And it seems to me, whoever uh, whoever rigged up that chat GPT integration for Volkswagen um, that returned the list of cars that didn't include Volkswagen as one of the manufacturers, my hunch is that that person could have a very short career in Wolfsburg. <laughs> yeah, look. Um, I, but we're going to start to see AI in all the cars, right? Because Mercedes-Benz announced this even last year. There, there's already uh, a whole uh, range of motor vehicles from Mercedes-Benz that have ChatGPT integration. So what I take from that, Mark, is that our automobiles are going to kind of condition us to talking to machines. And it makes a good deal of sense in a car, right? Your hands should be on the wheel, your eyes should be on the road. So use your voice. You can talk to the car and ask for where the nearest fuel station is or the nearest hydrogen fuel station if we're in the future. Okay, that makes sense to me. But that means that we're going to start to have a habit of talking to things and expecting them to talk back to us. Is this Alexa 2.0 or is this going to work this time around? Well, it will work this time around, but, and this is the interesting but here, is that voice interfaces have different social requirements, right? If everyone's talking to the devices all the time in public, that is a very different public space than we are used to now. Like even now, you do have people talking on phones, but that is still considered actually borderline rude, depending on what's going on where. And so we don't have the social protocols in place for us to really be able to understand what we want from voice interfaces if we are moving en masse. I actually think the future is going to be a mix and it will be modal based on, you know, do you have your hands free? Can you stare at the device? When we put a voice interface into a car, what we don't want that car interface to be is we don't want it to be prolix. We don't want it to give us a paragraph when it can give us a word or a sentence <laughs> because we don't have time for that, yeah. right? And so a lot of it's going to be, how do we find that sweet spot between what we need to do conversationally and getting the, the, the essentials of the information we need quickly? And it feels like there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that. We just interviewed Mark Theremin, uh, who's uh, uh, head of strategy for Boston Dynamics on the mm. show. Um, <laughs> and he was talking to us a little bit about some of their work with the military and some other groups. And they have actually had voice-activated robots. And you know, for folks who are listening, you'll be familiar with those videos on YouTube from Boston Dynamics of things like Big Dog and Atlas, which is their humanoid robot. Uh, now the company's much more focused on robots that would work in a factory. So they're building a whole new range of products. And we'll talk and about they're, that. And they're owned by episode. Samsung now, I believe. Uh, no, Hyundai. Hyundai owns them. Oh, Hyundai. I'm sorry, Hyundai. Okay, yeah. I'm saying it like an American, you're saying it like an Asian. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, good, good linguistic grab there. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make there is that um, they had voice activation, uh, voice command for the robots. And the problem, they disabled it at the request of the military. They disabled it because um, military people found they had to have their conversations with their personnel elsewhere. They had to like leave the robot because it always thought people were talking to it. It's like a solipsistic device, right? It thinks everything's around it and everyone's talking to it, even when you're trying to talk to somebody else. And you can imagine that being confusing. So that's yet another protocol we're gonna have to work out when we talk to machines. Is, are you really talking to me? Um, yeah, we're what, already what are the things Siri popping up all the time when you're having a conversation with a friend and Siri starts to chime in. It's always a little bit annoying, always jarring. The other thing you see at CES besides cars is stuff that flies in the sky. And famously, yes. this is the show that popularized drones even yeah. before they were really um, capable of it, I guess. But you know, that's part of why you go to CES. You see stuff that the industry's thinking about yeah. and it might not be commercial, commercially available for several years. Um, there used to be a whole hall of drones yeah. before the pandemic. Is, is that still the case or has that evolved? There were some drones, but there was not a, because I remember the 2019 show and I went in and like one whole wing was drones, right? Yeah. It was massive. There, There is drones, there's drone soccer going on, but it's kind of, it's, it's just kind of more carefully integrated. It's just part of the flow of the show because the hype cycle is over. But you know, DJI is there and the other big drone manufacturers will all be there. But I saw something that blew my mind. And again, this is one of the little companies called Jetsy. So it's a Swiss company. And what they did is they took the basic idea of a drone, but blended it aerodynamically with a glider. All right. So that oh. means that a drone and a normal sized drone can really only fly a couple of kilometers on its batteries. The Jetsy drone can fly a hundred kilometers. Oh, wow. All like, right. What kind of payload can it deliver? Like a few pounds? I, I think it's five kilograms. Oh, no bad. Okay. So yeah, it's not bad. And um, and it's used, they're using it in Switzerland to deliver medical samples, right? And from the doctor's office right over oh, right, right to the pathology lab, just fly it right over because it's got to go in a hurry. And to me, I looked at that as like this is one of the like drones don't just have to be quadcopters, right? We have a lot of flexibility in the form factor here. Now that we're sort of getting there, it's like this is not going to be useful for everyone everywhere, but mm -hmm. there are certain classes of long distance applications this is ideal for. So it can still do vertical takeoff and vertical landing, but once it's airborne, it can take off like a bullet and go in a direction. Well, it's interesting because what it does is it actually it actually docks like that on the side of the building, and then I think it just releases and flies off like that. So it's it's not quite like a quadcopter like that. It will go into its dock. And then the person will open it up and get things out of it. So it's just kind of more like that. So they they really rethought the the aerodynamics are different than a quadcopter. It does have some fine motor control similar to a quadcopter so that it can get itself right into the dock like that, right? But it's not it's not inherently a VTOL device like mm -hmm. a quadcopter because it doesn't need to be because it's got that huge wingspan. And and then does that give it, um, does that make it quieter? I would imagine then it doesn't need to have such a loud noise because drones are incredibly annoying. That's why they're banned in parks and so forth. Um, this thing could be, if it's designed for long haul, it's probably quieter and faster, I would imagine. I, I mean, I, yes, I think it's faster because again, it's gliding. So presumably, yeah. and I didn't inquire too much about the internals of it, but I would assume that it has some capacity to be able to read the thermals. And catch them, right? I mean, I honestly don't know if I were going to make, if I were going to make. It's the name glider. Yeah, if you're a glider, <laughs> you're probably thinking about thermals and, and the you know, kind of street, you know, of air in the in the sky. 
And a human pilot does that kinesthetically, right? They feel the controls, they feel the wind, so they know where they are. Presumably, you'd put that kind of intelligence to a drone. That I don't know. I'm hoping mm-hmm. it's working that way. And if you're going 100 kilometers, I can't imagine you wouldn't have that in there, but I honestly don't know. Well, cool. I mean, eventually we'll see that in an air taxi of some sort, moving people you know, around. Maybe that's how we'll get to the airport in the future. Uh, good stuff. Any other fun things that you saw on the show floor at CES that we should hear about? Um, so the coolest thing I saw from a big company was from Sharp. And this just, it blew my mind. So smell <laughs> what they call the AI olfactory sensor. So it's the opposite of smell vision. It's not creating sense, it's detecting them. And that has proven to be an incredibly hard task for sensors. And Sharp's approach is, is pleasantly brute force in that they will take a, a whiff of something and then they'll bring it into what they've done, which is basically a miniaturized spectrograph, right? They'll take the sample in, they'll run voltage through it. They'll then read basically the molecular components, which is what a spectrograph does. And then because they've also then trained the system on many different scents over time, they've built an AI model so they can present a spectrograph. And then the AI model will say, this is closest to, it's what AI is good at. It's like, here's the closest to what we think it is. It's like, it's, this is the profile. So that is now about this size. They want to be able to make it smaller and to make it parallel so that rather than it taking a minute to do a sample, it can do six of them in parallel and do it in 10 seconds or five seconds. And then they want to integrate it into a system that will be used so that uh, wine fanciers can actually measure the bouquets of their wines. That's what it's for. So it'd be well, like a cell phone sized device that'll help you analyze the aroma of yeah. a wine. That's how Sharp is seeing it. I was in the booth at the same time there was a professor of medicine from Berkeley who clearly thought it had a lot of uh, of applications in medicine and in healthcare. And I think he's probably right. So it's going to be one of these things where, yeah, you solve the problem for wine lovers, but in fact, you produced a generically good sensor. And you think, Robert, we've had microphones. So sensors were voice for 150 years. We've had video cameras for 70 years. We still don't have a nose. Yeah, that's true. And it's one of the most primitive senses too. So it's sort of like a core sense for humans. Um, okay. Well, gosh, Mark, good fun. So thanks. You, thank you for this report. It's good fun to hear about uh, hear about Vegas, to hear that CES is alive and thriving and thumping. Everybody was telling me I should go this year. And I just sort of felt like I could watch it all on the internet. I didn't need to go subject myself to Las Vegas and the lines and the taxi queue and all the rest. Oh, thank yeah. you very much for doing that for us. Who were you covering the show for? Uh, so I was filing for the register, and you, if you go to theregister.com, you'll be able to find my report, but also for Cosmos Magazine, which is basically the Scientific American of Australia. So I did two reports for Cosmos, one of which was published just a few hours ago, and uh, 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 one for the register. And in fact, I think before we finish, I just want to touch on the thing I really talked about the register. The most interesting thing from the big companies was a tie-up between Walmart and Microsoft. Oh, where yeah, Walmart, you were say, yes, yes, please do. We'll wrap with that. Walmart is integrating full like Copilot, Microsoft's Copilot into the search box of their app. So if you have the Walmart iOS app, it's already been upgraded and you can type in, I'm planning an anniversary party. What do I need to do? And it will then, per a large language model, break it down. Oh, an anniversary party will probably have these elements and then go and search Walmart saying, here's some things you might want. So it's the first, we've, we've been hearing about AI as a search replacement for a while, but we haven't really seen any good examples. This is the first really good example of that. Mm-hmm. So that's 
the first thing. But then the other thing they announced is very deep integration using Azure, so Microsoft, so that they have, and we already know that Walmart has incredible supply chain awareness, but now they're extending that all the way into your home. So Walmart will know when you need a carton of milk, we'll be able to order it. And if you have the subscription service, a Walmart person will come into your home and put it into your refrigerator for you. All right, which, you know, creepy, whatever, but definitely sort of a full service. This is how much awareness in AI because they've modeled the supply chain that completely. So it's the next level of commerce. That's quite extraordinary. So eventually this stuff does get to uh, the intelligent fridge, which has been a perennial uh, perennial item at the uh, at CES for, for all the years. Um, well, at some point we should have another show about artificial intelligence and just what the AI companies are gathering in terms of personal data. We tend to forget that Google knows more about most of us because when we're searching for, you know, a, a, an itch on our arm, some kind of skin rash or some kind of cough or something else, well, we search, we find the result, maybe we heal and get, move on. We forget about it, but Google remembers all that stuff. So it knows a lot about our medical history and our location history and our relationships and our friends and our proximity. That all comes from uh, Android and from search. With AI, the AI companies that are foisting Copilot uh, and Google and Microsoft among them, they are going to gather huge amounts of data about what we're thinking about, what we're not sure about, what we're tentative about, things that we're experimenting with, uh, toying with, you know, how do I ask my boss for a raise? How do I write that email to a difficult client? This element, this kind of uncertainty, that's really, really valuable stuff if you want to persuade people, if you want to convince them, if you just want to nudge them in a certain direction. So our tech companies are about to gain yet another level of intrusive data collection, um, whether or not we welcome it. And on that sunny note, Let's bring the show to an end. Jack, thank you for sparing me the trip to Las Vegas this year. I'm so uh, grateful to you for doing this. I'm, I'm glad I took the hit for the team, Rob. <laughs> Great. How can they find, how can our listeners find your uh, articles on the register or how can they find them on Cosmos? So the register.com and it's Cosmos Magazine. If you just search Cosmos Magazine on the web, it'll come right up. Um, and it's all for your name, Pesci, yeah. P-E-S-C-E. Cool. Yeah. And Mark, how can people find you and follow you on the web? Uh, markpesci.com and also if you want to take a look at as you know I have a podcast just yeah. google the next billion seconds and that'll come right up and we did a couple we did two shows from Vegas so we talked oh. about what we were seeing at the show when we were there as well oh I'll go check those out okay great well Mark Pesci thank you very much for joining us this week on The Futurist hey Kevin Hirshhorn big, big, big shout out to our engineer who rallied on short notice to record this on a national holiday thank you for that and our producer, Elizabeth Severance, and the whole crew at Provoke Media. Thank you all very much. Happy New Year, and enjoy your devices. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futuristpodcast.com for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.